Well, good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. While you're turning there, I want you to ask yourself a question. I want you to ask yourself, why did I start pursuing God? Or maybe something more along the lines of, why did I first come to God? Why did I begin coming to church? Why um, did I take an interest in God? What was the first motivation for me? I want you to ask yourself and think about that for just a moment. I remember my, my oldest daughter, Marley, is four years old. She just in December turned four years old, and she is just a bundle of joy, sweet, precious girl. And a little over a year ago, we had a pretty scary situation happen with her. Um, throughout her two-year-old year, she had a lot of uh, just, you parents get it, at that year, two years old, three years old, your kids tend to get sick a lot because they're getting all these different viruses, all these different colds and all that kind of stuff, and they're building their immune system, which means they get sick a lot. And that complicates life. You have to try and figure out, okay, now what are we going to do with our kids since we can't send them to school because we don't want to get everyone else sick and get all their kids sick, especially a year like we have this year with everything that's been going on, even more so that's amplified. It complicates work schedules and who gets to use sick days or vacation days or who has to do whatever and what family all that stuff. Well, Marley was getting sick just a lot. She seemed like every other week she was getting sniffles and cold, cough, all that kind of stuff. And we had talked with our pediatrician about it so much that it was just the repetitive, yeah, unfortunately, she's got another virus that is just, uh, she's building her immune system. And so the general result was rest, hydration, Tylenol, manage, the fevers, things like that. And so that happens so much that we just got to a point where it's like, okay, that's, I guess that's what we do when she gets sick. That's kind of how we'll navigate this and practice um, growing her immune system that way. Well, a little over a year ago, there did come a time where she got a fever. And so according to the pattern and habit that we had seen, we thought, oh, well, here we go again, one more time of let's make sure that we keep her hydrated and let's make sure that we manage her fever. If her temperature gets too high, we'll give her Tylenol and try and keep it low. And this went on for two days, three days, four days, five days, six days. And around that sixth and seventh day, it also got to a point where her temperature started climbing to a degree where it began pretty, uh, getting pretty scary. And so we felt that Marley had a need maybe a little more than usual, and so we didn't think it was super serious, but serious enough to say, hey, pediatrician, let's, can we get in and get her checked out? So we got her in. Our pediatrician begins evaluating her, doing her, her routine and testing and checking some things. A few minutes later, she comes back in the room, and she says, Marley has a severe kidney infection. And we were like, whoa, that sounds really bad. And she was like, yeah, that is really bad. Um, and she was at a condition, a state where it was dangerous to where if she maybe took one or two steps further, it would become a hospitalization situation. And Katie and I that day had taken our daughter to the doctor with what we felt was her need. We thought that 
she needed some attention, she needed some focus on her health, whatever might be going on. She might need a little bit of help. What we're doing is not working, so maybe they can just give us something a little more helpful or a little stronger. And when we got there and saw the expert and they evaluated, they showed us that her need was actually significantly more severe than we thought it was. Significantly more severe than we had perceived, so much to the degree that our doctor had recommended giving her two shots of rocephin, which if you don't know, that's a very strong antibiotic that is administered through a really, really thick needle, uh, a high-gauge needle that will bring a grown man to his knees. And my little sweet three-year-old daughter had to get one in each leg and then come back two days later and do that again. It was really terrible to see her go through that, see her go through, one, what she was going through with her health, but then also beyond that, to have to get those antibiotics administered that way, uh, to see her just scream and cry. Uh, It was a difficult thing for a father to watch. Most people begin coming to church, begin taking interest in God because of a felt need. Most people start coming to church because uh, I lost my job or I'm anxious about everything that's going on in the world or I'm in financial distress or I'm battling depression or I feel alone or I'm addicted to alcohol or drugs or some other substance or I've, got a, uh, I've received a terrifying diagnosis, uh, I, I lost a loved one. These are the type of things in our lives that are usually felt needs that, that a lot of times wake people up to an idea of needing God, and therefore, maybe finally push them over the edge to going, okay, I don't want to go to church, but I'm going to get out of my comfort zone, or maybe I'm going to start watching online because there's this need in my life that is beyond and above me that I can't change or adjust or control, and so I'm going to go to the perceived higher power or authority to plead for help. Although these are definitely legitimate needs, and they're, they're valid reasons to come to God and seek aid from him. Ultimately, like what we found with my daughter Marley, that our true need is significantly more dire than these needs. And again, I'm not at all downplaying the reality or significance of these needs. But they're not as dire as our true and ultimate need. We turn to Isaiah chapter 6. As before we start reading, there, uh, just to give you a little background, uh, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, uh, this chapter 6 is the account of his call from God into the office of a prophet. Um, the king had just died. It was a king that was loved by the people of Israel. King Uzziah had just died. And God pulls Isaiah into a vision, into the throne room of heaven, where he then calls him into the ministry in the office of the prophet. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two 
he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want to pause right there for just a moment. We'll continue reading. But I want to point out a few things right there. I want you to really try to imagine this scene. It's really easy for us to read things like this and, and almost place it in our mind as we're reading in the same category as if we were reading some fantasy where we can imagine it. But, but I want you to really try and put yourself in Isaiah's shoes and imagine yourself in this scene where God is high and lifted up on his throne and the train of his robe fills the entire temple. And we've probably seen some pretty, pretty impressive trains on some brides, some long trains, especially if you ever watched a, a royal wedding, um, you know, anything like that where there's a long train that someone carries behind. And right here it's showing that the train of God's robe fills the entire temple. And in the ancient days, the attire like this was something that kings would wear and garnish themselves with to show their stature. And so in God's train of his robe filling the entire temple. He's showing his stature also with the fact that he's high and lifted up. And then we learn about these creatures, these seraphim. These are perfect, holy, sinless creatures made by God. And just like everything else that God creates, he designs them for the purpose that he created them. And what do these angels, these seraphim do? They're up above the throne of God they have six wings, and even though they're perfect, they have no sin, they use two wings to cover their faces and shield their faces from this holy God. And they use two to cover their feet from this holy God, and they fly with two. And then their job, their role for eternity is to back and forth over and over and over to saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, or the Lord of hosts. This word holy is sometimes difficult for us to grasp. We know that God is holy. But what does that even mean? Well, if we look up the meaning of the word and if we do some research, we'll find that the word holy literally actually means separate. Um, some further explanation and definition can mean different or other. In other words, something that is holy is separate, different, other than anything, everything, anyone else. That God in his holiness is unlike anyone else, anything else, so much to the degree that these angels, who are also perfect and righteous, these seraphim, cover their faces from this God and cover their feet. And although we never want to make the mistake of pitting any characteristics or attributes of God against each other, that's dangerous, we don't want to do that. 
And we don't also want to, we never want to make the mistake of picking an attribute of God that we like more and therefore then elevating it to where we say, God's not like this, he's like this. We never want to do that. Although there is one characteristic of God that scripture might allow a little more emphasis on, and that is this account with the holiness of God. How do we say that? Well, today in our, in our writing, if we were writing something and we wanted to put emphasis on it, what would we do? We would either underline it or maybe all caps. Have you ever got that text message or that message from someone that's all caps and you're like, whoa, whoa, you're yelling your whole message. If we want to emphasize something, we'll caps lock it or we'll underline it or we will bolden it or we will italicize it. In the ancient biblical days, if they wanted to emphasize something, they would practice repetition of what they wanted to emphasize. That's why so many times Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, or even he would say things one time and then he would say, and again, I say to you. That's, that's Jesus underlining, caps locking, bolding, exclamation point, italicize, emphasis by repetition. That was the practice of ancient Eastern literature was how they would emphasize something by repeating it. No other characteristic of God in scripture is repeated to the second degree and placing this superlative influence of three times over going holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There are the characteristics that are repeated, but none repeated twice over to the third degree. That's like saying the best of the best. Or like when you're trying to explain something to your kids and you're trying to help them understand it even though you can't and you're like, kids, it was, it was super duper duper super duper yummy. Or it was super, super awesome and we add all these repetitive terms and we try and emphasize it more and more to try and give credence to the weight that's above what's being perceived at the moment. These seraphim, back and forth, over and over and over, are going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God is holy. Continuing in verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. Imagine that. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. What is Isaiah's response? When he sees the holy God high and lifted up with the seraphim declaring over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah's response is not, wow, this is awesome. His response is, woe is me. He 
said, for I am a man of unclean lips. When he sees the king, the Lord of hosts, his immediate response is, I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be here. In fact, it might be dangerous for me to be here. He said, woe is me. That's what he's saying, like, woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. He's confessing his unworthiness. He's confessing why he should not be there. For my eyes have seen the king of the Lord of hosts. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had uh, taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. <laughs> Send me. And he said, go and say to this people. Can we imagine what it would be like to be in that room, to be in that place? Or even beyond that, what if, what if right now where you're at, what if God manifested and appeared himself right before you, what would your response be? I think we've been taught and trained to think that our response would be like, oh, my Jesus, whom I love, my homie, my buddy, my friend. Woohoo! Yet through all these accounts of Scripture, we can see over and over and over where people saw God or saw Jesus in his glorified state, or even saw Jesus in a moment and realized who he really was, and their response was nothing like that. Not at all. Now, we can be encouraged by the fact that what did God do? He ordered the seraphim to come over and cleanse Isaiah, and then called Isaiah. And how many times were people fearful when they saw who Jesus really was? And Jesus would say, fear not, or angels would say, fear not. And so we're thankful for that. Nonetheless, there's a lesson there for us to consider. Because it's also popular today to teach the idea that what does it mean to fear the Lord? That fearing God means respecting him. That to fear the Lord means I'm going to respect him or I'm going to take him seriously. And again, when we look at Scripture, which is where we should learn about God's character, his nature, his attributes... When we look at scripture, all these accounts, people are afraid. They're terrified. And see, let's go to another passage, Mark chapter 4. This is one that you've probably heard before. Mark chapter 4, we're going to read verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd... They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? We have a felt need here. Don't you care? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great, what's your Bible say? Fear. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Notice the disciples, they're with Jesus in this boat. They're crossing to the other side of the lake. As Jesus said, let's go to the other side. Jesus is asleep in the stern somehow in this crazy tempest. He's asleep in the stern of the boat with his head on a cushion. He's having some sweet dreams. The disciples come and shake him and they're saying, God, Jesus, well, not God. They said, Jesus, don't you care? In fact, I want to point out something. They didn't say, God, don't you care? They didn't say, Jesus. They said, teacher, don't you care? And even at this point, they had already seen Jesus do a lot of miracles. If you read the chapters before this in the book of Mark, Jesus has already healed a man with a withered hand. He's already cast out tons of demons. He's already healed tons of sick people. They've seen all these miracles. And in the boat, when they're about, when they're in fear for their lives, when they have a felt need, they come to Jesus with their felt need and they say, Jesus, teacher, don't you care that we're about to perish? Don't you care? Jesus stands up. Peace be still. And the wind stops. And the wave stops. And the lake becomes like glass. And the disciples, what was their response? We knew you would do it. Yes. High fives. Awesome. No, their response was they were very much afraid. They said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The point of this account was not to say the disciples didn't go, whoa, can you teach us how to do that? Can you like anoint us to command the weather? That's pretty awesome, God, and I can think of a lot of ways that that would be really beneficial towards my life. Could you teach me that? No. They didn't go, woo we knew you. No. They were very much afraid. Why? Because in that moment, there was something holy in the boat. Someone so different, so other, so unlike them that it made them afraid to be in the boat with someone who could dictate and control the wind, the waves, the sea. They were terrified. See, there's something about the holiness of God 
that creates fear, yet it also creates within us at the same time this curiosity, this wonder, this hunger, this desire to look further. This is why Moses, on top of the mount, when he is up there and experiencing some pretty incredible manifestations of God's glory, Moses says to God, God, I, I want to see you. Show me your glory. God says to Moses, Moses, you would die. I'm paraphrasing. He said, no man can see me and live. But what I'll do, I'll carve out a little nook in the rock. I'll set you in it. And I will uncover you and, let, and I will pass by and let you see my back. For no man can see God and live. And he does just that, and Moses is blown away by the glory of God. And the glory shined upon Moses so much that when he goes back down the mountain and the wilderness, where it's sunny and bright, his face shone so bright from the glory of God, from having got a glimpse of the back of God, that in the bright, sunny desert, he had to veil his face for the rest of the people because his face shone so bright with the glory of God. The holiness of God creates this fear, yet also creates this curiosity, this hunger, this desire. I think it creates and awakens in us something where we're going, I came from that. That holy one created me, and he created me for holiness, to give glory to him. See, the biggest problem that the human race has is this, that God is holy, he's righteous, he's just, and we are not. That's our biggest problem. Wait, 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 Pastor Stephen, you're saying that God's holiness is a problem? Like that's bad. No, I'm not saying God's holiness is bad. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I'm saying his holiness to unholy people is a problem. And not only is it a problem, it's our greatest problem. It is our greatest need. The theologian, author, teacher, Jared C. Wilson, in a book, The Gospel Driven Church, he said this. He said, God cannot be the satisfier of your needs before he is the satisfier of God's wrath. That Jesus Christ cannot satisfy your needs before he is the satisfier of God's wrath. See, the holiness of God is problematic for us because sin separates us from God. This is the biggest problem in the world. This is the greatest need in the world. Is that sin separates us from the holy God. That we cannot be in his presence. We cannot be in fellowship and relationship with him because of our sin. Because he is so holy, so perfect, so righteous, and a just judge of sin that we cannot be with him. This is our greatest problem. It's dangerous for us. More dangerous than losing our jobs is sin in our lives. More dangerous than our current financial situation is sin in our lives. More dangerous 
than Joe Biden getting elected or Donald Trump having possibly got reelected, either outcome that you might think is horrible, more dangerous than those, ooh, he went there, is sin in our lives. More dangerous than COVID-19 is sin in our lives. More dangerous than our marital struggles or issues or failures is sin in our lives. More dangerous than our physical ailments and diseases is sin in our lives. It's dangerous because it's offensive to the holy God. Almost all of us are probably pretty familiar with the account of Genesis where God creates everything holy, perfect, righteous, good. There's no sin. There's no evil. And the serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve. I was watching a Q&A session one time where a pastor was asked, why was God's punishment for the disobedience of eating the apple, or not the apple, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why was the punishment for that so severe? And I think we probably all resonate with that question at certain points in our lives, especially if right now it's New Year's, Hopefully, maybe you've started a a Bible reading plan to read the Bible throughout the year. And if you did, there's a good chance that you just recently read this account in Genesis. And if you're one who likes to think and reason, there's a good chance that in your life before, you've read or heard this account and thought, man, that's, I mean, they ate a fruit. That seems a little severe, this curse that was put on the earth. And someone wrote that question and turned it in and this pastor gets really upset. And he said, he said, what's wrong with you people? This creature from the dirt, Adam, defied the living and holy God. And God, who had warned them, saying, the day you eat from that fruit, you will surely die. And even in their rebellion, in their disobedience, immediately mercy and grace is given in the fact that God did not exact that judgment and immediately caused them to die. Not only that, but he sacrificed an animal to clothe their nakedness, giving us a picture of the grace and mercy that would come in the new covenant where we would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. See, we want to go, wow, God, that's a little extreme. We want to make fallen judgments against God's holiness and righteousness and justice by saying, really? That? Or as you continue to read on through the Old Testament and you see some of the decrees and orders and commands that God gave or the way that God handled some situations, it makes you go, whoa. It can make you think, and God is harsh. But what it ought to make us do is go, Woe is me, God's a lot holier than I think he is. I'm in trouble because God's a lot more righteous and perfect than I think he is. And if that was the judgment on simply disobeying by eating a fruit, I'm in trouble. This is our greatest problem, this is our greatest need. While Marley, my daughter, her pain from those Rosefin shots broke my heart. It was brutal to watch and to see her cry and you hold and you try and comfort her. 
I was so relieved that the problem was identified. I was so thankful that our doctor had the knowledge, the experience to identify the problem. I was so relieved that she was in the hands of an expert. Our pediatrician's been practicing over 20 years. I was relieved that she was in the hands of an expert. I was relieved that there was a known solution. I was relieved that there was an available solution. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. This is a famous passage that I I love so much. It's so powerful. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's all bad news in light of God's holiness. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I'm going to pause there for a second. Listen, how wonderful is this news that we see the problem that every single one of us has sinned and we want to we want to make false judgments fallen judgments against God by saying that's a little harsh and we see God's judgment on the disobedience of eating the fruit that he told them not to eat and we like to go well that's not that serious the same way we like to go my gossip's not that serious Or we like to go, my gluttony is not that serious. Or we like to say, my little white lie to avoid this issue or that drama is not that serious. Or we like to think, the lust in my heart and mind, not that serious. It's not hurting anyone else even. But Jesus really ups the ante. He ups the bar. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching to a massive multitude of people. And if you know it, he says, you've heard it said, and he's talking about the law of God, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say that if you even look at a woman and lust for her in your heart, you've committed the act of adultery with her in your heart. I remember growing up, and I I worked really hard to make myself the poster child of Christianity. I was the good pastor's kid. People thought Stephen is awesome. You know, like there's there's some bad kids out there, some bad apples, but thank God there's some good apples too like Stephen. And I would parade around this membership card of the virginity club. I saved myself for marriage. I got married at 29 years old and um, I I never uh, had sex before marriage. And I would parade myself amongst my carnal, ungodly, unholy, wicked friends. And I would be like, 
I would look for opportunities to drop into conversations the fact that I had never slept with anyone because I thought it would make people in our culture, in our age, and amongst people that I knew go, wow, Stephen is a good dude because that's a difficult battle and he's doing it well. Wow, good on you. But according to what Jesus said, I was just as adulterous, if not more adulterous, than any other. I had wicked lust in my heart. I was a prisoner to it. Jesus removes from us the idea that any of us can go, I'm good. Because he's saying, if you even got it in your heart and in your mind, you're doing it in your heart. Your heart is wicked. This is why the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah both prophesied that a new covenant would come in which God would remove our stony, stubborn, rebellious hearts and replace them with a heart of flesh that is tender and responsive to God's decrees where we would want to obey him and we would want to please him and we would want to serve him because the issue is not only the fact that we have disobeyed God but it's that fact that by nature we are disobedient and sinful and wicked in our hearts. That's what we just read in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, that by, like the rest of mankind, we were children of wrath, following the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the body and the mind. But God, because of the great love, listen, why is holiness important? You want to go, Stephen, please stop talking about this. This is uncomfortable. I don't want to be confronted by my sin. I don't want to look in the mirror. I don't want to do this. Listen, if you want the delivery of the love of God, you cannot fully and accurately or rightly see how much God loves you by offering his son to forgive your sin until you see how holy he is. And we see how holy he is by the way that he exacted judgment on the disobedient Adam and Eve who only ate a fruit. Or even the good intentions of a guy in the Old Testament who was walking next to the Ark of the Covenant and they knew they weren't allowed to touch the Ark. They weren't allowed to. And he's walking alongside it and they hit a rock and the Ark of the Covenant starts to fall off of the wagon and he reaches out his hand to touch it and steady it to keep it from falling. What a great intention and God struck him dead. God would have rather the Ark to fall on the ground than a sinful, unholy person touch it. This picture of the holiness of God, adjusting our view of God and taking our low view of his holiness and righteousness and according to scripture, pushing that view up higher to go God is holier than I thought he is. He's more righteous than I thought he is. He's more just than I thought he is. And for me, that's bad news because as Jesus pointed out, I have thoughts that are not okay. This is why we have the good news of Lamentations where he says, God's mercies are new every morning. We need it every morning. As we continue reading in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, 
And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Our kindness is seen with the knowledge of God's holiness and how sinful we are. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of this holy God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I heard R.C. Sproul one time say, God in his holiness, without negotiating his holiness, gave man the holiness of Jesus Christ. See, Our true need, when we look at the holiness of God, is forgiveness, grace, and mercy. There's nothing we need more. And we go, I get it, I get it, Pastor Stephen, I understand. This was a a thing that I got. (laughs) I got the gospel, I get it. You, You guys preach the gospel so much. We get it. Jesus died on the cross, and if we have faith in him, he saves us. We, we, I think we understand it. How many times are you guys going to keep preaching this? Every week. Martin Luther, the great reformer from 500 years ago, was wise in saying, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. Every day when we wake up, we need those new mercies because we wake up and we scroll on our phone and we see something that can trigger temptation. Or we drive by a house or through a neighborhood and we see homes that begin to make us grow discontent in Christ and think that our happiness is going to be found in the bigger, better, nicer. Or we dream about the job or the career or the status or the acclaim or the achievement thinking that those are the things that are going to fulfill us, which is sin. But our bottom line this week is a quote from The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he said, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. This reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, where the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth says that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. See, God is so, so holy that he requires perfection. And he is so, so gracious and merciful and loving that he provided perfection on our behalf through his son, Jesus Christ. That as Jesus Christ died on the cross, like we sing in the song, In Christ Alone, there on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the power of Christ. I stand. We know the love of God because God came down into our deepest need, took on flesh, Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, 33 years on this earth without sin, although he was tempted every way that we are, 
so that he could be the spotless lamb of God. As John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching in the wilderness, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold this Jesus who came to fix our greatest problem. I get it, Pastor Stephen. He's, he's fixed that problem for me. Yeah, but we still sin. We still need grace every day. I say amen to Martin Luther when he said, we need the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And we start living under the law where we because of our sin and the condemnation of Satan, we start trying to be good enough for God. And let me remind you of his holiness, wherein we can't be good enough. But God in his grace and his mercy and his love said, I am so good that I will send my son to be good enough for you as a substitution on your behalf. Where now, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when I look at you, I no longer see sinful Stephen, but in your place, I see my perfect, forgiven, righteous son. This is good news. This is the greatest news. There is no better news you could hear if they came on the news today and said something crazy happened, COVID-19 is gone. Open everything back up, restrictions gone, masks off, no more social distancing, you can hug everyone, you can embrace everyone, you can go to your concerts again, you can do all the stuff that you used to love to do. Great news pales into comparison to the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We don't get over this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Paul is telling them, listen, I would remind you guys of the gospel. Let me remind you of it. This gospel that you received, past tense, which is where we want to sit. We want to go, I received the gospel. I get it. Can we move on? He then says, in which you stand, present tense, today, new mercies, and by which you are being saved, present future tense. The gospel is not something we graduate. It's not something we get promoted from. It's not something that we take a class and we go, all right, I've got that check mark. I've got the gospel. Now teach me the better things, the different things, the deeper things. The gospel is the whole point of the whole Bible. 
The Old Testament is leading up to and setting up for the gospel. The prophets are giving pictures of the gospel that's going to come. Jesus, throughout the gospels, shows us the delivery of the gospel. And then the historical account of the book of Acts, and then the epistles, the letters, and the revelation of Christ throughout the rest of the New Testament explain and expound and further reveal the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus Christ. We received it, we stand in it, and we are being saved by it. Don't let yourself fall into the temptation of saying, I got it. I get it. You let your guard down and you're not diligent and aware that there's an adversary, the devil, who's roaming around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're not on guard against the enemy's devices. There are two people listening to this sermon today. In the book of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus is talking. Luke 18, in verse 10, he's telling a story, this parable. Two men went into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's two people listening today. There's a person listening who's saying, yeah, get him, Pastor Stephen. Yeah, tell him about the holiness of God. Get him to line up. They need to live more holy. You get them straight. I'm thankful I'm not like those people. And then there is the other who is going, have mercy on me, a sinner. One has their badge. One thinks they've got it. One is sitting here parading their badge of self-righteousness. I think, I'm thankful that I do this and I do that and I am not like those other evil people. And the other is able to look in the mirror soberly and honestly and repent. Say, forgive me. See, as you grow in maturity in Christ, as you grow and mature as a believer, it's not that you repent less. You would actually be repenting more because through Scripture and through the Holy Spirit, you begin seeing more and more things in your life that grieve the Holy Spirit. 
You began seeing more and more things in your life that may be okay for other people but are not okay for you. God begins giving you convictions and begins showing you that he wants to call you higher, not so that you can go, I'm thankful that I'm not like that and I'm thankful that I do these things, but so that we can in humility and gratitude go, thank you, God, for searching my heart and seeing if there be any wicked way in me. Thank you, God, for pulling me out of my, my petty, tiny, trivial, satisfying things and into the ultimate, infinite, eternal satisfaction of Christ. Our call to holiness is not just so we can be accepted. Our call to holiness is because God has made acceptance available. And he says, be holy for I am holy. And we are his children and we want to emulate him and show him. And from delight in our heart over the treasure we found, we do it joyfully. Elated in our hearts at an opportunity to obey God. Our prayer is that word of grace could become a church where there is a discernible spirit of repentance where none of our people are walking around with this swagger of like we are holy that's right we're God's chosen people but that we would walk around and go man we're holy because of the imputed holiness of Jesus Christ and that holiness is a call to be separate to look different to be other than the world. Be in it, but not of it. And it's not so we can earn righteousness, but because of the righteousness given to us. This is all about resetting our need and recognizing that as we reset our need and focus on living in light of the gospel every single day, that all the other felt needs we have in our lives find their place in Christ, giving us grace, contentment, and even answering our prayers and our needs and all that. But our greatest need is to be reconciled to Christ, be reconciled to God through Christ. And that's why we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Our ministry's not saying stop sinning. That's part of being reconciled to God. But the ministry is the ministry of reconciliation, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, where we say be reconciled to God. God, I thank you for your holy word. God, we acknowledge right now you are holy. In the living rooms of our church family, in the kitchens and dining rooms, in the offices and bedrooms, in the workplaces, in the cars, let your holiness be something we are aware of in this very moment the grace that you've given by allowing us another breath, the grace and mercy that you've given us by calling us into your family, the love that you have revealed to us by sending your son to fix our problem of sin in opposition to your holiness and granting us holiness in the substitution of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit that right now, if there's anyone listening or watching that does not know you, that you would open their eyes, help them see their need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Help them see their sin for what it is, 
confess it, repent and turn away from it and receive salvation in Jesus Christ, being filled by the Holy Spirit, transformed into a new creation, receiving that new heart that delights to obey you, wants to serve you in a transformed life that other people go, what happened to you? You're different. God be glorified in changing hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name. Amen.